This is an ABC podcast. Many of us dream about making big changes in the world, but so few do. I'm Lisa Leong, and I want to know just what does it take to be a change maker? First up on This Working Life, we're going to meet a man who didn't let anything get in his way in his quest for change. Jeff Hucker's 34-year career as a pilot took him around the globe multiple times. Saw many parts of the world, like I'm a boy from the bush in Australia. I wouldn't have had that opportunity to see all the places that I saw, so, you know, very fortunate. But he didn't always feel the calling to make change. Not really. You know, I just started a normal, you know, education, you know, flying around the world living in five-star hotels. I was fortunate to go to some of the places that I saw, you know, with my job, but also really change the way that I really look at the world. Just seeing the things that I saw and really seeing the disparity of wealth in the world. And we all want the same things, right, whether you're in a remote part of Australia or in Kenya or in Nepal. We all want the same basic fundamentals to be safe, to our children to be safe, to be educated, access to medical resources and so on. But, you know, unfortunately, a lot of people in the world don't have that. It was a trip to Ethiopia that led Jeff to start not one but two organisations aimed at making the world a better place. Yeah, with Emirates, I was based in Dubai, of course, and I was always, you know, fascinated about the history of Ethiopia, you know, Queen Sheba and King Solomon, King Solomon's mine. You know, those terrible pictures that we saw of the famine uh, and the history indeed. So, you know, I went there um, about 20 years ago But really what I saw in Ethiopia really changed my life and, you know, led me on the path that I've been on. What did you see? You know, I was in Addis Ababa and through a series of events ended up in an orphanage in the foothills of Addis Ababa, which is, you know, the capital of Ethiopia. And the orphanage was designed for 50 children. There was about 250 kids there. And my son at the time was very similar age to these kids so I just went there and I was just sort of hanging out with the kids and I was playing soccer and just being there and being present. I was trying to teach them to play cricket. And, mm. uh, and as I was about to go, one of the kids said to me that something that's really stayed with me my whole life and he said, please come back and see us. He said, you know, you people come but you go and you never come back. And I thought, okay, well, of course I'll come back. So, I, you know, I came back a month later and then went to the orphanage and then some of the kids that I've been playing with are there, you know, they weren't there, they weren't. I was asking, you know, where's John or where's Ibrahim? And the kids sort of went quiet. And what it inspired is some of these kids had passed away from HIV AIDS. It was, you know, the height of the pandemic. And I just couldn't really comprehend it. I just thought, you know, and I really related with my own son. I thought, and I knew the antiretroviral drugs were available, but they couldn't afford the, I'm not sure the exact price was about $20 a month. And, you know, at that point, I really started to understand the disparity of wealth in the world and really, you know, led me, you know, started the journey working to build Beyond the Orphanage and working with some of the most vulnerable children in the world. So what issue did you see in particular that you thought you might need to change in terms of the orphanages in Ethiopia? Well, I started working in the orphanage and, you know, it was a really good orphanage run by Francescan sisters and... On my days off and my leave, I would go there and we renovated the orphanage over a short of money. We organised long-term funding. I put in a computer lab. Um, we put in 5,000 books because kids didn't have anything to read at night. But all the time I was there with, the, you know, working, just doing the physical work, the kids all wanted attention. 
So they wanted a hug, they wanted homework time, they wanted to show you the homework, so there's 250 kids, but they really wanted that attention. Mm. And then I was living in a, um, when I was in Ethiopia, I was living in a little sort of flat, it was about 10 minutes walk, but the kids on the street that I got to know, and daily they were living lives that you couldn't imagine in your worst nightmare. So the, and they're the ones that were kept really touching. So I thought there's got to be a better way than institutionalising kids. I thought there's got to be a better model. We've got to be able to do it more efficiently where that we can utilise the family structure, the community uh, and organisationally combine together to look after the kids. So I, I formed with some really bright people, you know, Professor Ray Kirk, Dr Natalie Connor, an alternate care model. And the alternate care model looks at the children holistically, regardless of what challenges they have. And then an organisation, you know, beyond the orphanage steps in to help them where needed. So the kids live in the community, they live in the home. So that back then, you know, a typical scenario is mum and dad pass away from HIV AIDS and there's a child left and there's a grandmother or an auntie that really loves that child, but, you know, very poor, very, very poor people and can't physically look after the child. So then organisationally we would reunite a family if it's appropriate and then look after that whole household. So we don't see the child in isolation. We see that the importance of keeping that household together and looking after that child. And from a child protection perspective, you know, the most important thing is having people really looking after that child and making sure they know where the child is when they're coming home and all that sort of stuff. So how long ago was this and, and how many kids come under Beyond the Orphanage now, Jeff? So started working in Ethiopia in 2000 and then um, 14 years ago we formed Beyond the Orphanage. And to answer your questions, to date there's about 2,000 kids that have come through the programs. Mm-hmm. There's five programs in Nepal now, one in Kenya, and at any one time there's about 300 children in the program. Each of the program we, we partner with Indigenous organisations if there's not an Indigenous organisation, we'll build an Indigenous organisation because we really believe that, you know, Nepalese know Nepalese children better than anyone. You know, Kenyans know Kenyan children better than anyone. But also we have more high-income country um, access to resources, to expertise to really help bolster the organisation. So it's a real partnership working together. And how do you feel, Jeff, looking at the work that you've done with Beyond the Orphanage? I think it's, you know... I I had a text the other day from a young guy that I met on the streets like 15, 16 years ago and he was in a really bad way and he was with Beyond the Orphanage for 12 or 13 years and he probably wouldn't have survived unless he came to the program and now he's a chef at a five-star restaurant and he's this really strong, bright young man, really proud of his um, what he's doing. So, you know, for, for me that gives me enormous satisfaction, for want of a better word, just to, and just to see the ability that each and every one of us has to fundamentally change someone's life. Beyond the Orphanage has never been a bricks and mortar organisation. Why not, Jeff? No, in, you know, like in the early days when I was in Ethiopia, I saw some of the larger charities and I felt they wasted an enormous amount of money. You know, I'd look at what they spent on a day just in hotels and interpreters and drivers and business class travel. And back then, you know, for $1,000 a day, we could really, really look after a child for a year. And we have always been very driven to be really efficient in the way that we operate. So that we started Beyond the Orphanage with no bricks and mortar. And today, you know, 14 years later, there's no bricks and mortars. And to me, it's a bit of a no-brainer. Mm-hmm. So really reduce your cost base 
And then also having access to online, to, you know, a worldwide talent pool. And when you connect passion and purpose, it's phenomenal what you can get done. Like we all, most of us have to work, we have to earn a living, we have to pay the rent, we have to pay the mortgage or what school fees or whatever's going on. But it's our lives, right? But when you're working and then you're making a positive impact in the world, I think it's a really powerful thing. Now that takes us to your second endeavour, if one wasn't enough. Let's talk about work for impact. How did that come about for you, Jeff? Well, really, you know, from the work in, you know, in Beyond the Orphanage and just seeing how the power of having a remote organisation, no bricks and mortar, and connecting people with passion and organisations that have purpose. You know, when we talk about four purpose organisations, AAA bottom line, B Corporation, social enterprise, and of course, you know, we love the not-for-profits. As long as the organisation has a good social environmental compass and then they have a really good footprint of what they want to do, a positive impact in the world, and when you connect with individuals. So I really did a lot of research. I saw firsthand from Beyond the Orphanage how well it works. You know, it's not perfect, but it works incredibly well. And data was really showing, this is pre-COVID-19, that the way that we look at work over the next 10 years will significantly change for organisations, and they're looking for alternate ways of working, you know, more efficient um, access to global talent. But Jeff, was there an incident or something that spurred you to come up with this idea? How did that happen? Just really, you know, running beyond your orphanage and just seeing how efficient it is. And a bigger picture of this is that the kids that would graduate from beyond your orphanage with a degree or a vocation, and really smart kids, but a lot of times there wasn't opportunities available to them. And one of the things I'm really excited about in the world at the moment is digital literacy and the access to internet. So with these kids, why can't they live in their family groups? Why can't they live in a community? If you're in a remote community in Australia, why can't you access worldwide jobs? Why can't you do a Google career certificate, you know, for six months or a micro degree and then have access to, you know, worldwide jobs? And in the low-income countries, I think it'll be a real game-changer for platforms like work for impact, to offer opportunities where there aren't opportunities and to keep kids and young men and women in the safety of their communities and the safety of their family groups. And how does it actually work in practice? So if I'm a freelance and I want to stay in my hometown, how does this system work? So work for impact is a marketplace, so two side supply and demand. And then for, you know, freelancer or, you know, on-demand talent, you're an expert. So you sign up to work for impact, you fill in your profile, uh, and then jobs are posted through organisations. You know, there's a lot of vetting that goes on for the individuals in the organisations, and then we match in the middle. And then you apply for a job, and then you work um, wherever that job is. Um, but it's, you know, it's online. So you could work for a US organisation, you could work for a European organisation, you know, of course, Australia, New Zealand, or wherever it may be. So I really think where you live shouldn't limit the opportunities you have available to you. I think you should have, you know, worldwide opportunities, you know, organisationally. You shouldn't be limited to your jurisdiction where you actually are. You should have opportunities to talent worldwide as as individuals. And how many organisations have you got on your books and then how many freelancers are participating so, you know, we just went, to, we launched in, in April in beta and we only just really started in June. So we're just sort of getting our feet. But to date, the response has been phenomenal. People really get there for purpose, you know, making a positive impact in the world. So to date, we have over 200 clients that have signed up and 11,000, nearly 12,000 freelancers. And have you got an example for us? We wanted to write a blog 
how that organisations or platforms like Work for Impact will really help empower low-income countries. And I put up an ad on, you know, Work for Impact and a guy from Kenya applied and I thought, you know, perfect person to write. So he lives 300 kilometres south of Nairobi, the capital of, of Kenya, and he's got a degree, a master's degree in English literature from the Kenyan University. And then he wrote, you know, a blog for us, wrote really well. And he earned 20 US dollars an hour for us. And I looked at the time, what the average urban salary in Kenya was, and he was like earning 15x. And I thought, well, what's great. And I talked to him. And in his household, there's six people in his household. He's the only income earner. But he said they're doing really well through his online work. So there's many cases like that where there's opportunities where he wouldn't have had opportunities before. So he's in the safety of his family and of his community and of his language group, but still earning a really good salary. Jeff, what do you think has driven your passion for change? I think, you know, in the early days in Ethiopia, just seeing what I saw and really seeing the power that each and every one of us has to make a positive impact in the world. You know, when I started Beyond the Orphanage and started working in Ethiopia, and, you know, I, I spent in the early years, pretty well all my savings and friends and family would criticise me and say, you can't make a difference, you can't, there's corruption, there's, you know, blah, blah. You know, I've heard it all. But you can. You can do so much as an individual. And in your life, if all you do is change one person, one child's life, help an older family or whatever it may be, I think it's just a wonderful thing to do. And the feeling that I get from the work that I do for Beyond New Orphanage and now, you know, work for impact is much more than any material possession could ever give me. Um, you know, I really want to make a better world. I really believe passionately to work, to strive to a better world for us all. And, you know, we can, we can achieve it in so many ways. You've made massive changes with massive impact. What would your advice be for someone who would like to make a difference in the world? I would just say do it. Just, you know, just really go ahead. There's always a thousand reasons not to do it. And just start really small and then just build up, gather support around you like-minded people, but do it. Don't, you know, talk about it, do it. Thanks, Jeff. Hey, great to chat to you, Lisa. Thank you so much. Have a lovely day. Jeff Hucker, former pilot and founder of Beyond the Orphanage and Work for Impact. You're listening to This Work in Life. I'm Lisa Leong. The end of the year is hurtling towards us and frankly, it's been a hell of a year. It's been particularly tough on our mental health and with me to talk through managing mental health at work is Karen Gately. Karen worked in HR for more than 20 years and founded human performance agency Corporate Dojo. Hi Karen. Hello. Let's start with managing your own mental health at work. How do you go about that? I think the starting point is to actually recognise that it's a priority. You know, for a lot of us, we don't think about mental health until we're actually having problems and we're struggling. You know, so some of the the classic challenges to our mental health in the workplace is overwork and burnout and and not actually taking the time to rest and recover. You know, what I learned as a a martial artist is winning and being at your peak is as much about rest and recovery as it is about actually you know, competing and turning up for training. So the same is true in the in the business world. You know, we need to recognise when we're doing too much. What are the early warning signs? Because sometimes you don't even know when these things are happening. Yeah. Well, the classics are, for example, focus. You know, if we're really starting to find it difficult to just focus on the task at hand, if motivation's starting to get harder, then that's when we, we need to check in 
and clearly there's lots of different reasons why we might be struggling to to focus but often it's because our mind is just tired and we actually need to give our, our brain a rest starting to feel anxious when we normally wouldn't you know if our heart rate's running and there's no logical reason why that might be that could be another sign that again we're starting to get to that place of, of burnout because that's an indication that we're just in hyperdrive the whole time and then, of course, the, the classic is our temperament. If we're starting to find that we're a bit grumpier or gnarlier than we normally might be, again, it's another important indicator. Have you got an example of someone that you've worked with or coached to help them break this cycle? Yeah, me. And, uh, you know, I'm someone that has definitely (laughs) experienced this personally. You know, I've been to burnout and back twice in my career. And, you know, I I know from those experiences that it actually took me changing those behaviours to make the biggest difference. And then, you know, again, I can point to loads of clients, whether I'm coaching a CEO or I'm coaching a team member, none of us uh, robots. It doesn't matter what level of experience or seniority we are, we're still susceptible to these challenges. So I've had, for example, a client who phoned me because they were just too anxious to even walk into the workplace, you know, and they would be on the phone in tears telling me that they just can't face this today. So Karen, what did you do to dig yourself out? recognize some of the underlying psychological reasons why I got there. So in my case, very much, you know, unrelenting standards was a big part of my psychology. So I was never feeling like I was successful enough, never feeling like I was achieving enough. And actually recognizing that helped me to just take the pressure off myself and just to back off and allow myself to progress at at a more sensible pace the more we can understand why, for example, we might be a people pleaser, why we might be a perfectionist, can really, again, help us with that self-awareness to recognise when we're actually thinking, feeling and behaving in ways that are detrimental to our well-being. Then with that, we can change it. So if we're recognising that something is wrong or we need to change something, how do we break that cycle then? I think it's about putting some disciplines in place. The formula is not complex. It's the discipline around actually doing it. So again, setting limits around how many hours we're working on a given day, you know, making sure that we're doing the basics around have we had breakfast? Have we stopped for a lunch break? Have we clocked off at a reasonable hour? You know, a lot of us are connected 24-7 in terms of our emails or our mobile phones, and it can just keep us constantly on alert and looking out for work priorities. So, you know, step one is discipline. It's actually valuing the downtime and recognising that it's a necessary thing that we're doing as opposed to a nice to have. How do we manage staff remotely who have mental health issues, Karen? I think the key here is staying in touch and, and communicating. Often it can be as simple as asking the questions, how are you? And if the answer to that is, I'm not actually doing well, then, you know, again, we don't have to suddenly turn into a psychologist. We just need to express understanding and empathy that, you know, we all go through challenging times. 
And then it's about pointing those people to resources. Now, they might be internal or external, but resources around information and insights around how they can actually take steps to get to a place where they need and want to be. Sometimes it can also be really valuable to make sure that colleagues are touching in with those people or or one another broadly, because if we feel isolated, if we don't feel like we've got that support around us, clearly we can spiral into places that are really unhealthy. What's your advice as to what we should do if we do notice that a colleague on our team might be suffering from some mental health issues? Again, it's the classic question, are you okay? Let's have the courage to actually ask the question. And in my experience, a lot of people don't ask that question because A, they don't want to intrude, they don't want to pry, and also because they're not really sure what they're going to say if the person says they're not okay. So, you know, it is about that, having the courage, asking the question, expressing empathy and encouraging those people to actually put their hand up and get support. You know, something like 75% of people have never and have no intention of seeking psychological or counselling services, which clearly is a concerning number when we contemplate how many people in society actually do get to a place of depression and anxiety. So, you know, 20% of people at any given point of time are battling mental illness in the workplace. And do you think people aren't seeking help because there's still stigma attached? Absolutely. I think it's a a major issue. I know for myself, you know, the first time I was diagnosed with depression and anxiety, the overwhelming emotion I felt was embarrassment. You know, I, was, I felt really humiliated. And when my husband shared that news, if you like, um, with a family member, I was mortified. And the emotion I felt was, you know, that they're going to lose respect for me, that they're um, going to see me as being a lesser person than I want them to. And particularly given the work I do, I felt that I was a fraud. You know, here I am teaching everybody else how to look after themselves and, and I'm in this place. So that comes from our internal fears, but it also comes from a place of, you know, living in a society where not everybody has empathy and not everybody understands. So, you know, I think part of breaking down that stigma is to accept that not everyone's going to understand. It's about you understanding and respecting yourself and looking for the people around you that you can trust to support you and to be empathetic. Then, If you were told that somebody isn't feeling okay and that they might feel like they have anxiety or depression, but they don't want you to tell the boss or anyone else, what do you do there? Well, for a start, you know, that that's fine if they are then going to go and take steps discreetly or privately in their own time to look after themselves. I think there is a lot of value in encouraging people if they do have a trusting relationship with their boss to let them know so that the boss can actually be part of the solution. And, you know, often what's happening is people's performance is being impacted. And again, if we can encourage people to let the boss know what the full picture is here, they can put the standards of performance in context, you know, and start to actually see that the mental health challenges you're facing are part of the equation. It's not that you've just switched off or you no longer care or you're disengaged or you're incapable. There's actually something very real holding you back from being at your best. And clearly, in an ideal world, your boss understands that and is supportive of that and is able to be part of, as I said before, the solution to helping you to get to a better place. Is there any time where it's appropriate to have some sort of intervention? I think if you are seriously concerned about 
um, someone, for example, going down a path of self-harm, then yes, I think it's it's super important that we let people know. Again, we need to be respectful. We need to respect the person's wishes. But at the same time, if we think that they could go down that path, then seeking advice in the first instance from other people, you know, wanted to bring this to your attention. I'm seriously concerned about their well-being, and you know, hopefully encouraging the, the manager in that case to have that compassionate conversation. The manager doesn't then need to say, "Look, everyone's talking about you, and I've been told that you're not well." You know, they can be more subtle around that and saying that I've observed you're not quite yourself lately. Help me understand where you're at. Are you okay? And reflecting on your own experience, what was one major lesson you learnt from feeling like you suffered depression and, and the way it was handled by yeah. yourself and others? Yeah, that that very much is about the um, habits or the routines or the disciplines that I have in place. And, you know, rather than just being proud of how hard I work or how passionate I am, also being proud of my ability to achieve real balance. You know, we talk about work-life balance and it's something that we often struggle with. But in my experience, when I actually got to a place of making it a, a firm rule that there is only so much bandwidth in my working world and no, work will not creep into my downtime and actually just making that the number one priority was the major turning point. People management specialist, Karen Gately. This Working Life is produced by Maria Magic Tickle. I'm Lisa Leong, and until next week, keep working. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.